to the DC Debrief for Friday, September 1st, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, concerns over Mitch McConnell's health, Hurricane Adalia response, Republicans inching closer to a Biden impeachment inquiry, Trump pleads not guilty, and the feds silence Quackbot. Also, we'll take a deep dive into the Biden administration's plan for Medicare to negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies on 10 drugs, and we'll talk with Rachel Kors from Stat News about that, all coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder to please, if you haven't done it already, tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And with that all out of the way, let's get to the DC Debrief for this week. Hurricane Adelia response. The Biden administration announced federal funding to help the state of Florida and other states in the southeast recover after a violent Category 3 storm swept through the southeastern part of the United States this week. Correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on the federal response and the cleanup efforts. Adelia is the strongest storm to hit the Big Bend region of Florida in over 100 years. And state officials there say around 250,000 people remain without power. The top priority right now, reaching those who chose not to evacuate. Search and rescue missions are currently underway. And in an afternoon press conference, President Biden said federal resources are already on the ground in Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. I let each governor I spoke with know if there's anything, anything the states need right now, I'm ready to mobilize that support of what they need. Meanwhile, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says major storms like Adalia are likely the new normal. We are seeing an increase in the number of severe weather events. And what we saw with this storm, as we have seen with several of our hurricanes over the last few years, is that they are intensifying more rapidly due to the um, elevated heat of the water temperature in the Gulf, or in the Pacific, or whether it's in the Atlantic. Adalia is now making its way into South Carolina after moving through Georgia all afternoon. It is still considered a dangerous storm, bringing high winds, heavy rain, and serious flooding even as it downgrades. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster's declaring a state of emergency as a precaution. One of the interesting political subplots here is the fact that President Biden has been speaking daily with Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, is running for president against Joe Biden. And the two have clashed over uh, some of DeSantis's policies. And uh, clearly, DeSantis has not had very many kind things to say about President Biden as uh, he has been on the campaign trail. But the two men working together to try and bring federal funds and support to uh, to the state of Florida. And President Biden was asked about how his discussions with Governor DeSantis have gone over the first couple of days. Do you sense any politics in your conversations with him about this issue? No, believe it or not. I know that sounds strange, especially how the, the nature of politics today. But, you know, I was down there when the last major storm. I spent a lot of time with him, walking from village to from community to community, making sure he had what he needed to get it done. I think he trusts my judgment and my desire to help. And I trust him to be able to suggest that he's, this is not about politics, it's about taking care of the people of the state. The president also announced funding for the wildfires in Maui. $95 billion in infrastructure funds will go to help Maui recover from the devastating wildfires there. 
Mitch McConnell health concerns. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze up for the second time in the last couple of months when answering questions from reporters. A scary scene in Kentucky this week, and there are growing concerns over his health status. A lot of questions about it, as uh, we're not getting much detail as far as what's going on with the Senate Minority Leader, as well as the overall growing age of members of Congress and leaders in Washington. Correspondent Hillary Powell has more. Nearly 30 seconds of sudden silence Wednesday from the Senate's top Republican Mitch McConnell during a press conference is raising concerns on whether he's still fit to serve in office. Video from a local news station shows after 81-year-old McConnell was asked whether he would run for re-election, he trails off and stares straight ahead for about 10 seconds. Anything else you want to say or should we just go back to your office? The incident comes more than a month after McConnell had a similar freeze-up mid-sentence while speaking to the press on Capitol Hill. The following day, 90-year-old California Senator Dianne Feinstein appeared confused during a committee meeting. Yeah, just say aye. Okay, just Nearly a fourth of Capitol Hill lawmakers are over 70 years old. No boundaries exist for a maximum age to hold elected office. ABC chief medical correspondent Dr. Jennifer Ashton says when aging, not being able to speak or respond on command is cause for concern. Warrant urgent neurologic evaluation. Hours after the incident, in a series of tweets, Representative Dean Phillips expressed concern for McConnell and says though he supports term limits, he writes, it would require amending our Constitution. Nonpartisan group U.S. Term Limits contends age is just a number. What's needed is more turnover in Congress. Age really is not an issue when you have regular rotation in office or term limits like our, like our founders intended. So there's nothing ageist about term limits, but it does help solve the problem of our gerontocracy in Washington, which is getting severe. A spokesperson confirms to me that the senator's doctor has cleared Leader McConnell to continue with his schedule as planned, but this latest scare is really raising more questions about the age of politicians on both sides of the aisle. This is the third oldest U.S. Congress since 1789, and the average age in the Senate is 64 years old. In the House, it's just under six, uh, just under 58 years old, 57.9. The median age of voting House lawmakers is 57.9, compared to the median age of the U.S. population, which is 38.8 years old. So the average, so the median age of voting House lawmakers is nearly 20 years older than the median age of the U.S. population. Biden impeachment investigation coming? House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is hinting that House Republicans could begin impeachment proceedings against President Biden soon. White House correspondent Abigail Robertson has the details on the latest there. If you look at all the information we've been able to gather so far, it is a natural step forward that you would have to go to an impeachment inquiry. McCarthy claimed on Fox News that there is a culture of corruption within the Biden family that involves bribery and millions of dollars going to the family through multiple shell companies. He said he never had any dealings with his son's business and that he never even talked to him. We've now found out not only did he call into the meetings, he went to dinner and after the dinner, Hunter Biden got a new Porsche, that there was 3.5 million transferred. We now found out as he was a sitting vice president, the family created 20 shell companies. They received 16 of 17 payments from Romania while he was vice president. Former President Donald Trump, who was impeached by the House twice, chimed in on True Social, calling Biden a stone-cold crook and telling Republicans in Congress to impeach the bum or fade into oblivion. 
President Biden, who started the work week welcoming kids back to school in D.C., continues to deny he had any involvement in Hunter's overseas business dealings. According to a new Yahoo News YouGov poll, 45 percent of respondents said they believe the Biden family is corrupt, compared to 53 percent who believe the Trump family is corrupt. When asked which family is more corrupt, 46 respondents said the Trumps, compared to 36 who said the Bidens. That same poll found 64 percent of Americans believe Hunter Biden did something illegal. We can't have a convicted felon uh, as our nominee for president and expect we're going to win. Presidential candidate Chris Christie reminded voters Hunter Biden is not on the ballot. The fact is that the two people who would be on the ballot if we nominated Donald Trump will be Donald Trump and Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden. Uh, and the fact is, it's the conduct of the people um, who are running for office that's going to matter the most. We may find out more about President Biden in the months to come. But the fact is, right now, Donald Trump is out on bail in four different jurisdictions. And thus far, Biden's campaign has avoided speaking about the legal issues facing his son, Hunter. And they're also not focused on Trump's issues either, claiming they want an independent justice system handling both. During the Trump impeachments, Republicans complained that former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi didn't follow proper procedure in bringing impeachment proceedings against Trump. And Democrats now argue that if Republicans do bring impeachment investigations to the floor without a vote, they'll be doing the same thing that they criticized Democrats for doing previously under Donald Trump. Raimondo's China trip. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo returned home from her trip to China as she tries to repair economic ties between the two countries. Raimondo insisted the U.S. does not want to decouple from China. U.S. businesses want to do business here, but they need to have a a predictable regulatory environment. So I had no expectation that on my first visit here and my first meeting with Chinese officials that we would suddenly resolve, uh, you know, specific issues, some of which have been happening for, you know, more than a decade. At a press conference in Shanghai, Raimondo said she had not expected any breakthroughs on issues affecting U.S. companies such as Intel and Micron, Boeing, Visa, MasterCard. These are her first meetings with Chinese officials as the Biden administration tries to uh, warm relations back up. But uh, she did hope to see some results in the next few months as a result of her four-day visit. So kind of laying the groundwork as she was visiting Beijing and Shanghai this week. She also did say that earlier in the week, some American companies had complained to her that China had become uninvestable. She noted that China sometimes fines and raids company for companies for, for no real reason. And so uh, the Commerce Secretary trying to smooth things over with Chinese companies, but also to bring back some concessions, or maybe at least the hope of some concessions to make American businesses want to invest in a massive market once again. But the Chinese government has been making it difficult for American companies, and there is a lot of pessimism, as you can hear uh, from United States companies in investing over in China. Uh, In other China news, the United States approved $80 million in military aid to Taiwan on Wednesday under the Foreign Military Financing Program. Now, that financing program is usually used to provide aid to sovereign states. The State Department said that the use of this program did not reflect a change in America's stance toward Taiwan and that the U.S. one-China policy does not recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, even though they're using this financing program that typically uh, is only used to aid sovereign states. They are not saying that Taiwan is a sovereign state. They're simply using money from, uh, from this program in order to do that. 
Trump trial date and Meadows in Georgia. Former President Trump entered a not guilty plea to 13 Georgia felony counts related to an alleged scheme to overturn the state's 2020 presidential elections. An attorney for Trump filed a waiver of arraignment in a Fulton County court Thursday, and uh, several others among Trump's 18 co-defendants have also filed waivers and entered not guilty pleas. Former Trump attorney Sidney Powell, uh, who was one of the faces of the former president's post-2020 election legal challenges, also pleaded not guilty this week. She also agreed to waive her arraignment in Fulton County. Uh, another defendant, Trivian Cootie, who's taking, who's accused of taking part in a campaign to harass a Georgia election worker, pleaded not guilty. This is uh, something that is allowed most of the times by the prosecuting attorneys. Instead of having people show up at arraignments and go through a legal process, you're allowed to file paperwork so that you don't have to show up to their arraignment. And that is what Donald Trump did this week as well. Uh, now, one of the one of the folks who are among the co-defendants here, uh, former Trump attorney John Eastman, who was on Fox News this week with Laura Ingram, once again proclaiming his innocence and denying that he tried to overturn results he knew to be valid. He said the government is simply trying to silence lawyers like him. They're trying to stifle people from being able to get representation in election challenges. They've made that very clear that that's what they're up to, and we can't allow it to happen. In an interview on CNN, former Georgia Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who has been a harsh Trump critic ever since the 2020 elections, said Republicans need to prevent Trump from being the eventual nominee. Right, 91 indictments, fake Republican, $8 trillion worth of debt, everything we need to see to not choose him as our nominee, including the fact that he's got the moral compass of more like a, an axe murderer than a president. Now, despite all of this, the, the, the Republican electorate still is heavily backing Donald Trump. He has a commanding lead in a new Emerson poll out this week at 50 percent with DeSantis at 12, Ramaswamy at nine and Haley at seven. Although Trump's number is down six percent following the first GOP debate and the fourth indictment. A new morning consult poll found where people see Trump as electable. After the mugshot came out, with 62% of potential primary voters believing he has the best chance to beat President Joe Biden in the general election. And in the latest University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs poll, Trump has a 42-point lead over DeSantis, who has suspended his campaign this week to help his state through Hurricane Adalia. No more quacking for QuackBot. If you haven't heard of QuackBot, you're not alone. I hadn't heard about him either before this week. But uh, the FBI announced that they had taken down the malicious QuackBot malware that they called one of the largest U.S.-led disruptions of a botnet infrastructure used by cyber criminals to commit ransomware, financial fraud, and other cyber-enabled criminal activity in American history. QuackBot has been responsible during the course of its life for numerous losses in the area of cybercrime, cybercrime, tens of millions of dollars in losses through ransomware payments. And by stopping QuackBot and dismantling QuackBot, we're saving consumers and victims tens of millions of dollars of losses throughout the world. In addition, we seized through this operation almost $9 million in cryptocurrency by the cybercriminals. And that money now can be returned to victims of some of these cyber attacks. It's a big victory for a Justice Department that has been under relentless fire from Republicans, angry at their handling of the multiple Trump cases and the Hunter Biden prosecutions. 
Victims include a power engineering firm based in Illinois, a financial services company in Alabama, and a food distribution company in California. All were taken in by QuackBot, who added that administrators for QuackBot received about $58 million in ransoms paid by victims between October 2021 and April of 2023. The FBI said that it disabled the infrastructure of QuackBot by tricking computers infected with the malware into distributing and downloading a file created that directed computers to uninstall the malware and then to untether themselves from the botnet. Now, I don't understand what any of that means, <laughs> but it sounds really good. It sounds basically like they just, it was almost like they created a software to uninstall QuackBot on these different computers and, and free up these companies from having to pay this ransom. Uh, senior officials declined to comment on whether the QuackBot network was linked to any one country, and the FBI did not announce any arrests and said the investigation into who was behind the network is ongoing. Job market cooling. Businesses posted far fewer open jobs in July, and the number of Americans quitting their jobs fell sharply for the second month in a row. Those are clear signs that the labor market is cooling in a way that could potentially reduce inflation. The number of job openings dropped to 8.8 million last month. That's according to the Labor Department. That's the fewest since March of 2021, and it's down from 9.2 million in June. The drop appeared to be even steeper because June's figure was initially reported at 9.6 million. That figure was revised lower on Tuesday. So uh, July's figure was still healthy historically in terms of the job market. Before the pandemic, the number of openings never went above 8 million, and there are still about a million and a half jobs, uh, one and a half available jobs for each unemployed worker out there which is also elevated, but down from a peak of 1.9. That was last year. Fewer Americans are also quitting their jobs. And this is one of the things that we were hearing about a lot in the months after the pandemic as, as companies were really looking to bring people back and, and were desperate to hire people. People just started quitting their jobs and, and either getting new jobs or, or wanting to work from home and, and remote jobs. You know, the, the employee was, was gaining so much power in these in this push-pull balance. Well, Fewer Americans quit their jobs last month, with 3.5 million people leaving their jobs in July. That's down from 3.8 million in June, the lowest since February of 2021. Most Americans quit, quit work for other better-paying jobs. Uh, and during and after the pandemic, there was a big spike in quitting, as I mentioned, as uh, workers sought higher pay and benefits elsewhere. So um, we will get even more data on the economy coming up later today. In fact, by the time you've heard this podcast, uh, the unemployment numbers for August will probably have already come out. Uh, so we'll have a better sense as to the labor market and what effect that could potentially have on what the Fed does the next time the interest rate decision rolls around. All right, that's your debrief for this week. Now let's take our deep dive for this week's edition of the podcast. This week, the Biden administration released the names of 10 prescription drugs that Medicare would begin negotiating prices for with those drug manufacturers. And joining me to talk about the drugs in question and how this is all going to work is Washington correspondent for Stat News, Rachel Kors. Rachel, thank you for coming on the DC debrief. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. And it's a very interesting situation here because it feels to me like there's there's two sides to this and both sides kind of have to agree to kind of go along with this. But before we get into how this is all going to work, can you run down the 10 medications that we're talking about? What 10 medications 
will Medicare start negotiating for? Yes. So the list, just to run down quickly, as you said, um, Medicare chose 10 medications that are going to be kind of the guinea pigs in its first round of negotiations. And that list includes um, Eliquis, which is a blood thinner, um, Jardiance, which is a diabetes drug, Xarelto, which is a blood thinner as well, Genuvia, a diabetes drug, um, there's an AstraZeneca diabetes drug, Farsiga, and Novartis is heart failure treatment, and Tresto, Amgen's rheumatoid arthritis drug, Enbrel. And then there's also blood cancer treatment called Imbruvica. There's an anti-inflammatory drug used to treat Crohn's disease called Stelara. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a group of Novo Nordisk insulins called like Novolog or Fiasp. Now, now, some people listening won't know what some of those drugs are, but I would imagine there are a number of people listening to the podcast and, and watching watching here on, on YouTube that uh, maybe take at least one of those drugs, if not multiples of those different drugs. And Medicare is the largest single purchaser of prescription drugs in the country. Uh, prescriptions are the program's fastest growing expense, and Medicare accounts for about 20% of all medical spending in the U.S., and about one-third of the, all that spending is on prescriptions. So it makes sense that the Biden administration would want to try and tackle this. Why were these specific medications chosen? So these specific drugs were chosen because they cost the Medicare program the most money. So some of them, they kind of fall into two categories. Some of them are really expensive medications, like Imbruvica. It's a blood cancer drug. It costs a lot of money for patients that take it. So even if only a few patients take it, it costs the Medicare program a whole lot. Other drugs, like some of these blood thinners, they're a little cheaper, you know, month to month, um, of the cost for patients, but they're just so widely used that, you know, the, the sheer volume of patients that are taking these medications kind of bumped that up on the list of which drugs cost Medicare the most. So part of any negotiation requires both sides needing to be willing to sit down and negotiate. And the fact that there is already some lawsuits in the work in the works filed against Medicare drug price negotiations, um, I guess the, the, question that comes out of that is how likely are these companies to sit down and negotiate with Medicare to get these drug prices lowered? So the drug companies would tell you that this isn't really a negotiation in the way that you think of it, where two sides sit down across the table from each other and talk. Um, And I think that's what they're arguing in their lawsuits. And essentially, the only way for drug makers to get out of uh, these negotiations is for them to leave the Medicare program entirely, which, as you said, is the biggest purchaser. That's a big problem for the business propositions for a lot of these drugs. And I guess there is an also there's an alternative that the drug makers don't like to talk about, where they could allow generic competition on the market, even if they've you know created these complex legal webs to protect the medications. A lot of times they settle have these settlements with generic. Uh, drug makers who might be trying to put competitors on the market at a lower price. Mm. And so there's an incentive now for these brand drug manufacturers to potentially allow some of these competitors on the market earlier. So what you're saying is these companies could refuse, but then they would be losing out on this massive pool of people who who need these medications and this 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 massive influx of, of cash, even if the prices are lowered, it would still be a tremendous loss of business. Right. It's true. And Congress, when they passed this bill, uh, this law, they didn't expect any 
any like drug maker to actually pull their drugs off of the market. And if they keep their drug in Medicare, then they face really expensive fines um, for that'll take cuts out of the their profits for um, these medications. So I think that drug makers are arguing that they're being you know, coerced into this negotiation program. But the government is arguing that there's no constitutional right for a drug maker to sell drugs in Medicare and that the program should be allowed to use its leverage and bargaining power with all the people it's negotiating on behalf of to get a better price. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess Medicare, it it's a government program, but at the same time, it's 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 its own thing. It, it, it's acting as, I guess, a business in, in this case. And so uh, the, the legal straddling of those lines, you can, you can kind of see where the, the lines don't exactly meet up there. It's true. But there's, I think there's also a good point that um, the government has tried to make in that you know, other government agencies negotiate like this for prices already. I think the Veterans Affairs Administration does this, the DOD, the Department of Defense does this too. So it's not unheard of for a government agency to use their authority in this way. Sure, the Defense Department negotiates contracts all the time, as we uh, as we well know. So when we're talking about uh, the folks listening to this to this podcast, I mean, how much money could this save people? So that's a good question. I think in order for us to know how much this program is going to save people, we have to know what the prices are, which we don't have the answers to quite yet. But I think it's likely that consumers are going to see some savings if you're taking these drugs. And the important factor is how your insurance plan is structured. Uh, Because in Medicare's pharmacy benefit, there are a lot of different options for what people can choose for their plan to look like. And the people who are going to see the most cost savings here are the ones that are paying based on a percentage of a drug's price, which is actually pretty common in the Medicare Part D program. And so if they're paying a percentage of a drug's price, now, after these prices go into effect in 2026, they're going to be paying a percentage of a much lower price. So there's a potential for savings there at the pharmacy counter for sure. Um, Another important thing to note is that um, this law also capped Medicare beneficiaries out-of-pocket costs in this category at $2,000 a year starting in 2025. So for a lot of these really expensive medications, they may be hitting the cap already. So, you know, it's unclear each of these drugs is going to be their own kind of case study and how this works out for patients, but it is reasonable to expect that there could be some cost savings at the pharmacy counter. And these savings, when are they expected to go into effect? So these prices that are going to be kind of the first round will go into effect in 2026. So it's going to be a little while before people start to see savings on this, at least a couple of years. And are they going to be adding more drugs? I think there, there, there's a plan for, for more drugs to get added onto these lists in subsequent years, right? Yes, there are. They're starting with 10 because this is a brand new thing for Medicare to be doing. So they had to like create, they had to hire a bunch of people, create this new agency to help run this program mm. that is, you know, very highly contested. So they're starting out with 10 drugs this year. They're going to um, increase that number to 15 drugs the next year. They'll have another 15 drugs the year after that. And then it'll be 20 drugs a year into perpetuity. And note that it's additive. Like we start with 10. And then next year, it's another 15. So then there's 25 total in this program. Mm. So it will um, definitely grow in influence and in savings to the Medicare program as it goes on. 
I did see uh, one piece of criticism, or I guess maybe just a, a cautionary warning uh, from former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who was on CNBC when this first came out. And it should be noted that he is also serving on the board of Pfizer and Illumina. So, I mean, everybody has an interest in, in some of these things one way or the other if you're, if you're in the field. But um, he said that there were unintended consequences here, and most notably that pharmaceutical companies will start to do less in terms of trying to create what are called smaller molecule medicines, which are just like the pills that that we take that, that are used to treat these different things and invest more in the biologics, the ones that uh, require an IV or injections, because those larger molecule medications are not subject to these th these price adjustments. Am I, am I getting that right? Um, I think it's important to note that the the timeline is just a little longer. Like the biologists okay. just get a little bit longer on the market before they're subjected to these uh, mandatory discounts. So what I would say is that is a very common talking point with the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and what I would say, first of all, is that this isn't the first policy that Congress has passed that creates this disparity in small molecule drugs being treated differently than biologics. I think FDA's exclusivity periods already give biologics more protection, which in general, the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical industry supported at the time because they argued that biologics are more complicated, they're harder to develop, they're more expensive, so they should get more time on the market. But now the industry has changed its tune and is arguing that it's unfair. And I will say that patent protection is currently the same for both of these um, both of these types of medications. So I've talked to CEOs. They have acknowledged that this is not the only place where this incentive exists, but they argue that it does make the incentive much more powerful and meaningful because um, it, there's, there's a determined outcome. There's no question of whether a generic comp competitor might come on the market. There's no option. Medicare is going to negotiate for these lower prices, um, and there's a lot more certainty in that outcome. Well, this is one of those issues, one of those topics that does affect ordinary Americans. I try to focus on these issues here on, on the podcast. And uh, Rachel Kors does fantastic work for Stat News. She's the Washington correspondent. And I would encourage everyone to check out uh, their policy newsletter. It's called DC Diagnosis. Uh, if they want to learn more about uh, your work and, and get the newsletter, how do they go about doing that, Rachel? So I'd recommend visiting our website at statnews.com. Um, I have colleagues that do incredible work on covering science, covering business, covering drug development, healthcare. You know, uh, we, we cover it all. And that's a great place to start. And you can sign up for our newsletter. And we have others as well. well Rachel Kors from Stat News, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, looking ahead, the Senate will gavel back into session next week after the Labor Day holiday, while the House returns the week after next. And the top item will be trying to avoid a government shutdown, battles looming not only between Republicans and Democrats, but really battles within the Republican Party, specifically on the House side. So a couple of weeks until the drama begins in the House. But uh, senators are going to begin laying out uh, their roadmap for the next few weeks uh, with that government shutdown looming in early October. Uh, there's a lot of work to do in order for that to be avoided. All right, now it's time for the closer. And I wish it was a, a, a happier story here for the closer, but uh, something to, just to watch. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise says he's been diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which he referred to as a very treatable blood cancer, and he says he has begun treatment. Scalise is, of course, the number two Republican in the House. This is his second major health crisis in the last few years. Of course, everyone remembers uh, the, the shooting incident 
at a baseball field just outside Alexandria back in 2017. I was in Alexandria, pardon me, just outside Washington back in 2017. Uh, Scalise was shot in the hip. He was in the hospital for a long time and underwent multiple surgeries, went through a long rehabilitation process, and now, of course, the, the cancer diagnosis. Uh, he said he hadn't been feeling like himself in the last week, and blood tests showed some irregularities, and uh, came back as multiple myeloma. Scalise said in a statement that he's begun treatment. It'll continue over the next several months, but he expects to work through this period and intends to return to Washington and continue his work as majority leader. So uh, obviously we're all praying for Steve Scalise and wish him the best and a speedy recovery from this particular disease that he's got going on now. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave a five-star rating and a review. Let me know what you think about the show. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC CD brief.